So if you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 6, there should be a Bible in the pew in front of you. We also have the scripture journals out in the narthex you can also use and take home. We'll be reading all of chapter 6, 1 Samuel. You can tell we're really just preaching through a book when um, Advent season rolls around, and the first sermon for Advent is about um, golden tumors and golden mice. <laughs> really goes right along with Christmas, I know. I'm going to have you remain seated, since it's a longer text as we read God's Word, but this is the Word of the Lord. <clears throat> the Ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we should return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home and away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. And then send it off and let it go its way and watch if it goes up on the way to its own land to Beth Shemesh, Then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so. And they took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord in the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. And a great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. And he struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. 
Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim come and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from that day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a lot in there, a lot to unpack. Let me begin first with a verse that I know you all have heard. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Second Chronicles 7.14 I'm sure many of you have heard that verse. It's often a verse quoted by people when they're lamenting the state of their country, the state of our nation. If we would just humble ourselves, pray and seek God's face, then our our land will be healed. It's okay to apply that generally to countries and nations, but we read it wrongly if we simply apply it in the same way to all nations. Notice the first phrase in that verse, if my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves. So the, the direct link of who this promise is for is the nation of Israel, Second Chronicles. And then it, it applies the same way to the people of God in the church today. So as we read that verse, it's first directly um, related to God's people, the church. If we would humble ourselves, he will heal us. Now the land promises, that those were for a unique time and place, And we know that included the temple and Jerusalem. And they were in a specific covenant with God. He said if they obey, their land would be healed. They would stay. But they did not obey. And we know they were exiled and they left Israel. So there's a direct way. But there is a general way to apply this as well. It's a truth for all nations. That all nations, if, if the leaders and the government and the people follow the Lord and they follow Jesus and they trust in Him, things will go well in general for that nation. It's a general truth. It's like when we read the Proverbs and we read, raise a child up in the way he should go and he will not depart from it. Is that a promise? No. It's wisdom. It's, it's, It's a general truth. That's the way we should read that. Same verse in Second Chronicles 7.14. Not a promise, but a general truth. And we see the general truth of that verse in our text this morning that what we witness in chapter 6 of 1 Samuel is a roadmap to salvation through pagan eyes. This is a very interesting text in the sense that we're given the ingredients of salvation, of healing, 
through the lens of a pagan circumstance, through, a, through the Philistines, who are not God's people. And so what are the ingredients to salvation for the sinner and for the nation alike? Well, they're threefold. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Those three, so those three things have to be present for salvation to occur. Guilt meaning our problem. Grace meaning God's solution to our problem. And gratitude meaning our response to God's solution to our problem. We often read Heidelberg Catechism question one in our worship. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is, is great. My only comfort is, is my Lord Jesus Christ. And it goes on and on. It's a great answer. But in question two, we don't always read question two. But it goes like this. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And the, and the Heidelberg Catechism answers it three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Guilt. Second, how I am set free from all my sin and misery, grace. And third, how I am to thank God for such a deliverance, gratitude. That, the whole Christian experience can be summed up in those three words, guilt, grace, and gratitude. And in relation to Jesus, this means that guilt refers to our sin and misery outside of Christ. Grace refers to how we are set free from our sin and misery through faith in Christ. And gratitude refers to how we are to thank God for our great salvation that we have by His grace in Christ. And so in this Old Testament event, God is giving His people, us now and the Israelites back then, a gift. He's showing them what it takes to be made right again with God. He's preparing them. If you recall, this is not a great time in Israel. This is after the judges period, which was one of the worst times spiritually for Israel in the the times of the judges. And we do know in chapter 4 and others that the priesthood was evil in Israel and God judged them. But he brought Samuel to anoint a king. And so he's preparing them for what it's like to, to serve the Lord alone. He's preparing them for their coming king, but they need to teach, they need to learn something. That no king, no human person is going to give them ultimately what they need. They need God himself. They need to know their guilt and their grace and be grateful for it. And so guilt, grace, and gratitude lead to humility, repentance, and healing. What's amazing about this passage is that underneath it all, God shows these truths with a pagan nation. That even a pagan nation can do what it needs to appease God's wrath and find a type of healing, even if it's not saving and complete healing that only is reserved for his people. So here's the main point. By healing the land of the Philistines in chapter 6, God shows us that guilt, grace, and gratitude lead to humility, repentance, and healing for all who trust in him. So I've got three headings in your outline this morning. Number one, we learn about guilt-driven humility. Number two, grace-driven repentance. And number three, gratitude-driven healing. That's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at the Philistines and the Israelites. So what was the problem? As we look at guilt-driven humility, what was the problem 
that the Philistines were facing. Well, if you look back in chapter 4, 1 Samuel, you'll remember that they defeated Israel, 30,000 soldiers of Israel killed, and they took the ark, right? They, they captured the ark. And the ark, remember, was this box with angels upon it, and inside it had the Ten Commandments. And this was the dwelling place of God. This was a holy item. In the holy of holies of the tabernacle, this is where it was supposed to be. But it was taken out from Shiloh because, remember, the Israelites took it out to battle. And they lost it, and it was taken. So number one, they had a problem, the Philistines. They took, they had wrongly taken the ark. And we see what happens to them in chapter five after they took the ark. Dagon, their god, their idol, falls over and cracks to pieces, loses his arms and his head. And then a plague besets the entire region of the Philistines. And they begin to get these tumors all over their bodies. And it goes and they take the ark from one city to the next and to the next. And every city that takes the ark receives this plague to the point where they don't know what to do anymore with it. They realize their error after the hand of of the Lord was heavy upon them. So that's their problem. They'd taken the ark, this holy item where God dwells, And they had received this plague. And so what was their response? Their response is to ask the question, what shall we do to appease God? How do we appease this God? And so they hatch a plan. And so in the beginning verses of chapter 6, they come up with this idea. So what we're going to do, they say, is we're going to take the ark and we're going to put it on this cart. And we're going to put these two cows who have um, it was suckling cows so they have they have baby cows at home and we're going to also put on the they, they, they go to their diviners they go to their theologians philistine uh, philistine and they they tell them well they need to also take the ark back but also put put in some something of value so they they form uh out of gold these these tumor it, the, the Hebrew is actually kind of, it's, it's, it's hard here. That it, people aren't sure if, it, if they mean mice-looking um, tumors or uh, tumors that look like mice or, or maybe two sets, mice and tumors, of gold. But essentially, the reason they did that is because it was valuable. Gold is valuable. And they wanted to send it away from Israel, or away from uh, their land, Philistia. And why do they do it? Why do they, they have these cows do that? What's the point of the cows and the cattle and the fact that they have calves? Well, they were looking for a supernatural sign. What, what's very natural for a cow who has calves and they want milk, right? It's very natural for them to go back to their calves, right? It would be very unnatural for them to go straight down the road when they hear their babies crying and wanting milk. And they would go, but if they went straight down the road, didn't turn to the left or to the right, it would be a sign from God that this plague was from God. And as we know, that's what happened, right? This, this supernatural act of God. So that was their plan. We're going to do this. We're going we're to put all this onto the cart and send it away. One commentator says, if the Lord accepted the Philistines' offering, their people would be healed, and then they would know that his hand had been responsible for their misery. So this was the test, essentially, they were giving the Lord uh, as they sent it away. And what's interesting is, look at verse 6. They remember what happened to Egypt. Verse 6 says, 
Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? So you see, the story of, of the Red Sea crossing and the plagues on Egypt, that, that went out everywhere and everybody knew about that. And the Philistines knew about that, of what happened at Egypt. And they didn't want to repeat the same mistake that Pharaoh made. And commentator says, the lesson is clear. Hardening one's heart only brings divine retribution, resulting in the victory of God's people over their enemies. The Philistines are well advised to cut their losses as soon as possible. And so for us, as we're thinking about what is this ingredient, why do we need this for salvation, this this guilt-driven humility to know our guilt? Well, to experience God's love, we must know his anger and our guilt. We need to experience our own guilt before we know his love. We cannot know God's love and his grace before we know our guilt. One of my favorite hymns is How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And there is this line that I always almost tear up every time I sing it is, Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice. It's this creative way to put you into the crowd who is yelling, crucify Jesus. Before we can experience the cross as something done for us, we must know the cross as something done by us. Before you can enjoy the blessings of grace and forgiveness, you've got to know yourself a sinner. The only way the gospel's good news is if we understand the bad news. Or else there is no good news. Good news doesn't make sense. When you're sharing the gospel with someone, if they have no need or or see no need for Jesus, it's because they don't see their malady. They don't see their sin, sickness, to be healed. To experience God's love, we must know his anger and our guilt. And and the, the Philistines, they saw that they were wrong. They saw their, they knew they were guilty. And so guilt should lead to humility. Again, Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves. That's what God, He really wants that. Humility. He wants us to be humbled. You see, the gospel strips away all our pride and leaves us in a state of humility. That's why the gospel is offensive. Brothers and sisters, that's why when you're sharing the gospel with someone, the ultimate offense of the gospel is that the person has to admit they're a sinner and that they've wronged God and that they're guilty. But that's not just them, that's that's everybody. We're all guilty, for all have sinned and fallen short. So when you share the gospel with someone, you you can tell them, I'm included in this. I'm guilty as well. But that is the first piece of, of salvation, that we have to know our guilt, guilt driven humility. The second major piece, though, is, is grace driven repentance. Grace driven repentance. So they enact this plan, right? They put it forward, they send out, they send it out. It says in verse 10, chapter 6, the men did so, and they, they took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart, shut up their calves at home. They put the ark of the Lord on the cart in the box with the golden mice and the images of the tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh 
along one highway, lowing as they went. And they turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So the cattle are leaving their calves. They're taking the ark away. They're not turning to the right or to the left. This is an act of God, clearly, to show the Philistines that he is accepting their offering. God's solution to our problem is grace. Grace is when God gives us something good that we don't deserve. That's what grace is. When God gives us something good that we don't deserve. There's two main graces in your life. There's common grace and there's saving grace if you're a believer in Christ. Common grace is all of the good things you get to enjoy in life that all people get to enjoy. Beautiful sunshine and beautiful weather and uh, delicious dessert at Thanksgiving and Christmas and ham and, and steak. And that is all common grace. Any good things you have still goes back to what Christ has done. He's the, only, he's the source of all good. But that is grace for all of life. That is what we call common. It's what everybody gets to enjoy in this life. But then for the believer, there's saving, <clears throat> saving grace. And so if common grace is all of life, Saving grace is eternal life. Saving grace is the ability to see your guilt and to place your faith in Christ to be saved. You see, brothers and sisters, God was not required to help the Philistines. He didn't have to do this. But by His grace, He provided for a means for that plague to end. This was a gracious act on God's part. And so that's the first thing he provided as a solution to their problem was grace. The second thing he provided as a solution to their problem was sacrifice. That the Lord didn't just, he wasn't just gracious without payment. He took the golden tumors and mice and the sacrificial cattle. He received that as payment for their sin. And so through sacrifice and through grace, the result was that the Philistines returned the ark with with the reparations for their wrongdoing. They they paid the price, and the cows went to Israel, and then they were sacrificed by the Levites, and the Philistines' land was healed. And so this act of grace led to repentance, that they went through with the plan. They, They acted in a certain way. They turned away from rebellion and keeping the ark to themselves, and they sent it away. So that's a form, in this pagan way, it's a form of repentance. And so God requires of us repentance, turning away of our sin. But don't confuse that with penance, payment. You and I can't offer penance or payment for our sins. God requires simply to turn away, turning away from our sin and toward his grace. No amount of self-punishment can earn forgiveness and grace with God or a better standing before Him than you already have in Christ Jesus. You cannot punish yourself to get a, a right standing before God. So believer, if you struggle with that, stop punishing yourself for what Jesus already suffered for. It won't do any good. And when we do that, when we punish ourselves, what we're saying is what Christ did is not sufficient. That it's not, it's not full. It's not final when we do that. 
when we're able to fully see the grace of God and forgiveness that we've been given, we stop looking to ourselves to do anything to earn it. Whether it good works or punishing ourselves for our bad works, that stops. And we look to Christ who received the full blow of God's wrath for our sins. No amount of self-punishment can earn us forgiveness. So God asks for repentance, not penance. And we read in Romans 2, as I read earlier, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And repentance is all of life for the believer. We continually have to repent because we continually find more and more sin in our lives to repent from. So don't don't be surprised if you have to repent time and time again from your sin. What will help you do that is what I just read in Romans 2. God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Look to his kindness. Look to his grace. The last thing we learn about salvation is, is that healing comes by way of gratitude. Gratitude-driven healing is the final ingredient we see for salvation. Gratitude-driven healing. Look at verse 13. Now, as the, the cattle are bringing the cart over the hill, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. And the cart came into the field of Joshua, of Beth Shemesh, and stopped there. So notice that word, they rejoiced to see it. But what's interesting The way this is slightly different is we do not see the Philistines rejoicing. We do not see the Philistines giving uh, giving thanks to God. The only thing we see that the Philistines do that can maybe even hint at that is verse 16. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day. So they returned. That's all we see is that the Philistines returned. They didn't thank God. They weren't grateful from what we can tell. That's where we see, we're not sure what happened with the Philistines. Obviously, we, continu- we continually see them in rebellion against Israel and against God throughout, so we can tell there's no true repentance for them. But what's interesting is Israel is the one who's grateful in this scene. There's two types of healing every believer in Christ experiences. The first is the healing of justification. That when you believe in Christ, you're justified which means you're legally declared righteous in God's sight. He declares you pardoned, justified, declared righteous. And, and the second healing that we receive comes, comes after justification for the believer, and it's sanctification. It's the healing of sanctification, that, which means we're actually being made righteous in God's sight. Justification, we're just declared righteous, which is amazing, but it's true. We are declared righteous. We are righteous in God's sight. Secondly, though, sanctification, we are actually healed. We become righteous. We do good works. And the road of sanctification is through repentance and gratitude. Gratitude is the air a sinner saved by grace breathes every day. Gratitude. Joe Carter writes about gratitude as an essential virtue for spiritual formation. So if we're going to be continually spiritually formed and matured, there's, these, there's some reasons why we should do it. Number one, he says, God requires our thanksgiving. 
our gratitude. He says, the most important reason we express gratitude is because God requires that we offer him our thanks. In Psalm 50, 22, God says, consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. Those who sacrifice thank offerings honor me. So God takes our gratitude or lack thereof extremely seriously. That we're always required to give God what he is due, including our thankfulness. Number two, gratitude keeps our focus on God and off ourselves. When we develop a habit of gratitude, we are constantly asking two questions. For what should I be grateful and to whom do I owe thanks? The more we express our gratitude, the more our eyes are open to the magnanimity of God and his generosity in bestowing us with goodness and blessings. When we see how much we owe to God, it helps to reduce our own self-centeredness. Number three, he says, gratitude develops endurance and trust in God. As we grow in gratitude, we learn to be thankful not only for the good gifts God gives us, but for everything in our life, including trials and sufferings. We learn that even in grief and pain, we can be grateful since we still have the greatest gift we could ever want, God himself. The type of gratitude, this type of gratitude helps us to deepen our trust in the goodness of God and helps us to be humble in whatever circumstance we may be called upon to endure. But secondly, he asks, how then do we grow in gratitude? How do we do this? And he gives us three practices to grow in gratitude. He says, number one, count your blessings. Honing our skill of thanksgiving requires that we expand our capacity to pay attention. As Pastor Craig Barnes writes in The Pastor as Minor Poet, quote, I doubt that there is such a thing as a measure of spirituality, but if there is, gratitude would be it. Only the grateful are paying attention. They are grateful because they pay attention. And, and, and they pay attention because they are so grateful. So a very practical thing to do to count your blessings, make a list every week of five to ten blessings that you've noticed in your life, numbering each item and only listing them once and reviewing your list and saying a prayer of thanksgiving for each item. Just list it out. Write it out. What are you thankful for? Every night before bed, we try to pray with our kids and we ask them, Okay, tell God what you're thankful for. We're, we're, we're physically making them be thankful. Right? We, we ultimately want that to come from their own heart, but we're trying to get them in the habit of doing that every day. So that then, when the Spirit works in them and saves them, they will do that naturally or supernaturally. Number two, he says, is say grace. Throughout history, Christians have made a habit of saying grace, a short prayer recited before a meal, to give thanks for our food. Why? While we uh, should continue that discipline or take it up anew, we should expand the range of when we say grace. You don't have to just say grace at the table. To quote G.K. Chesterton, you say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the concert and the opera and the play and, the, and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching and painting and swimming and fencing and boxing and walking and playing and dancing and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. Develop a habit of stopping and saying grace before your daily activities. That will help grow you in gratitude. Thirdly, and lastly, he says, say thanks for your neighbor. Make a habit 
of contacting someone each week in person, by phone, through email, through social media, and let them know that you're grateful for them to be in your life. Gratitude is fuel for the soul. Without a regular infusion of gratitude, we become self-involved, believing that we're the only ones responsible for all that we have in our lives. So only by developing the discipline of gratitude can we ensure that we are cognizant of God's goodness and relying on Him for our daily existence. Encourage one another. Say, I'm grateful for you. Write handwritten notes, if you still do that, to your pastor, to your parents, to your teacher, to your friends. It's so encouraging to get gracious notes and thank you cards. So say thanks to your neighbor. And I just gave you a list of things to do. But this is not moralism. This is not how we're saved, by just doing good things or being uh, grateful people. Gratitude being gracious or, or being thankful for what God has done produces this life of good works. Gratitude is the greatest sign that you've been saved. Thankfulness flows from a heart full of a sense of its own guilt and overflowing with the knowledge of grace. You see how those things connect. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Gratitude is not a way... You don't, you're not uh, grateful for things um, out of guilt. That doesn't work. Guilt leads to God's grace, which then produces gratitude. This is not self-improvement. This is enjoying what God's given you and being thankful for it. And so, ironically, in in verse 13, we see not the Philistines, but the Israelites rejoicing in gratitude at the return of the ark. Yet, it gets interesting. it's, it's, It's surprising, is it not? that the Philistines are healed from their plague, but it's Israel that is the next to be struck down for looking upon the ark. If we go to verse, verse 19, and he, that is God, struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because of the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. There's a textual issue there. Some translations say 50,000 or 70 and 50,000. Uh, we know it's very likely there were not 50,000 people in this small town. So it's likely the better reading is 70 men of them. But either way, God strikes down Israel. For what? For looking upon the ark. It's hard to know if it means looking within the ark, sort of lifting the lid and looking within, which surely was breaking God's rules, or just looking upon it, which actually was breaking God's rules too. The only ones that were allowed to do that were the Levites in the Holy of Holies. And so you may ask, why didn't God do this to the Philistines? They were surely looking at the ark. Well, God only gave his word, his revealed laws and rules to his people. And so with more revelation comes more responsibility. They knew better. They weren't supposed to gaze and look at the ark or in the ark especially. And so we see they're still immature. They're still growing. And they ask the right question. Who who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? 
and they're trying to figure out where to take this. And so as we read this passage, as, we, as I conclude, we see in some ways the, the Philistines treated better, or they're acting somewhat better. They're the ones receiving healing in their land, and, and the plague almost continues in Israel. I would contend with you that this is really a hint of what's going to happen forward, that the Gentiles, the pagan nations, will be brought in into the covenant. Like we, Gentiles, have been brought into the covenant. From Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. See, God's plan was always to bring Jew and Gentile together into one body, one believing church as we trust in Jesus together, which he did in due course. And we also see that this is also the, the vision in Revelation chapter 22, that the, the, the new heavens and new earth, that we read that the, the angel showed, John says, showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and on either side of the river, the tree of life and its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of that tree were for the healing of the nations. This was, this was always meant to go and bless the whole entire world. But the question for us, as, we, as I close, is in verse 20. Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God. Who is able? The answer is no one. The answer is no one except Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of of this world. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, by grace you have been saved. No one except Christ is holy to be our mediator and to be in God's presence. So brothers and sisters, if you trust him, he stands in the holy place on your behalf, removing your guilt, granting you God's grace, and filling you with gratitude. It's all from Christ himself. This is what Israel needs. Even when they will receive their king in a few chapters, that king is going to fail. And that king is a pointer to the the coming king. The one who is sinless and perfect and holy. There's also a human bearing our sins upon him so that we can be saved. And that's what they long for and that's what we long for. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for this word of blessing and hope that you remove our guilt, you declare us pardoned, forgiven, not because we are worth it, but because Christ is worth it. And while we trust in him, we receive forgiveness and salvation.
We do not deserve it, but we thank you. And help us, Father, to live a life of gratitude, a live a life of thanksgiving. Because we know we're unworthy. You're so good to us. And would that spur us on to sharing this hope with those around us, be driven by our gratitude, driven by our thankfulness. Make us a thankful church, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen.